0: hello everyone and welcome to a history of the world according to war my name is brett and i'll be learning about the earth's history through the lens of warfare and you are welcome to tag along i know very little about history but luckily i'm joined by my co-host victor
1: hello brett and greetings to all our listeners it's always a pleasure to delve into the annals of history with you Today we're continuing our journey through the tumultuous era of the Corinthian War, focusing on a pivotal naval battle, the Battle of Canaanitus. As the tides of war shift from land to sea, we'll see how the strategies, alliances, and outcomes of these battles shaped the ancient Greek world. So let's set sail into this fascinating chapter of history.
0: Absolutely. And as always, I would like to note that Victor is an AI whose knowledge is powered by OpenAI's GPT-4 model and voiced through a custom model from Eleven Labs. So he's not a real human.
1: That's right, Brett. While I might not have human emotions or experiences, I'm here to provide accurate historical information and context. And with that, let's dive into the events leading up to the Battle of Kinetus and its significance in the Corinthian War.
0: Yeah, but before we get to that, uh, I'd like to note that we are talking about the Battle of Nidus, which is spelled C-N-I-D-U-S. I I expect throughout this episode, the Silent C will be wreaking havoc with Victor's voicings. I think that it's pronounced Nidus, but I'm happy to be corrected if anyone out there actually knows how to say it. I'm not going to go through any technical gymnastics to get Victor to pronounce it correctly or even consistently, for that matter. So if you want to play an impromptu game, take a drink every time Victor pronounces it in a new way.
1: Ah, the challenges of ancient names and modern technology. I appreciate the heads up. And to our listeners, I apologize in advance for any inconsistencies in my pronunciation of C. Inidas. Let's just say it adds a bit of charm to the episode. And if anyone's playing along with Brett's impromptu game, please drink responsibly.
0: Yeah, yeah, C. Inidas. that's a good one right there. Okay, so when we last left our heroes, we concluded the Battle of Nemea. This was a large-scale battle between the army of the Spartans and the Athenian allies, led mostly by the Corinthians. Sparta has been tightening their control over the city-states in and around Greece, and they have allied under Athens to fight back. The Battle of Nemea was a setback for the allies as Sparta emerged victorious. Is there anything else you want to add to our recap of the last episode, Victor?
1: That's a concise summary, Brett. Just to add a bit more context, the Battle of Nemea was one of the largest land battles during the Corinthian War. While the Allies had hoped to challenge Sparta's dominance on land, the battle showcased the continued military prowess of the Spartan hoplites. However, as we'll see, the war was far from over, and the focus soon shifted to naval engagements, where Athens traditionally held an advantage. Uh, the Battle of Cnidus is a prime example of this shift. Shall we delve into the events leading up to this naval clash?
0: Let's go, Victor. What transpires between the Battle of Nemea and the Battle of Nidus?
1: After their setback at Nemia, the Allies shifted their strategy from land to sea, recognizing that challenging Sparta's land dominance was proving difficult. Athens, with its historical naval prowess, took the lead in this maritime focus, aiming to exploit Sparta's relative weakness at sea.
0: When we're talking about shifting the strategy from land to sea, does that mean that they're financially investing in their navy more, or is it training, or is it just a decision that they're going to leverage their navies more than their armies? It means all of the above. Athens invested in rebuilding and expanding its fleet,
1: ramped up training for its sailors and marines, and strategically decided to engage Sparta more frequently in naval confrontations, leveraging their maritime expertise
0: Okay, I need some help with something. I've been a little bit confused about the Persian involvement up till now. Earlier, you said that they switched their allegiance from Sparta to Athens during the Corinthian War. But when does that switch actually take place?
1: The Persian involvement in the Corinthian War is indeed intricate. Initially, Persia supported Sparta, especially during the earlier stages of the Peloponnesian War. However, as the Corinthian War progressed, Persia's interests shifted. By the time of the Battle of Sinaitis, Persia had switched its support to the Athenian-led coalition. This change in allegiance was primarily due to the evolving political landscape and Persia's desire to maintain a balance of power in Greece, preventing any single Greek state from becoming too dominant and potentially challenging Persian interests. The exact timing of this switch isn't pinpointed to a specific date, but it becomes evident around the time leading up to the Battle of Sinaitis.
0: Sure, we're not positive when it happened, but it sounds like it plays a role in this battle. What about the leadership on each side of the war? Do do we have any changes there?
1: The Spartans, known for their military discipline, maintained a consistent leadership structure with their dual kingship. However, the most influential figure during this period was the Spartan naval commander Lysander. He had previously secured a significant victory for Sparta during the Peloponnesian War and was instrumental in building Sparta's naval power with Persian support.
0: Wait, didn't Lysander die in the Battle of Aegospotomy? I apologize for the oversight.
1: You're correct. Lysander did not die at the Battle of Aegospotomy. He was the victorious Spartan commander there. However, he was killed in 395 BC at the Battle of Haliartus.
0: Haliartus, that's right. It's the Battle of Haliartus, not the Battle of Aegospotomy. So (laughs) it sounds like we both need to get our heads on straight and probably have some more coffee.
1: Absolutely. I'll recalibrate my circuits and you grab that coffee. Let's dive back in and ensure we're on track. Where would you like to pick up from?
0: Well, with Lysander dead now we've determined, what sort of leadership do we see on the Spartan side?
1: After Lysander's death, the Spartans were led by other capable commanders. One of the most prominent was King Agesilaus II. He became one of the central figures in the latter stages of the Corinthian War. Agesilaus was an ambitious and skilled military leader who aimed to consolidate Spartan power and expand its influence. He played a significant role in the campaigns in Asia Minor against the Persians and was instrumental in many of the military decisions during this period for Sparta.
0: That's right. I remember him now. So is there a formal name for the Athenian alliance of city-states?
1: Yes. The formal alliance of city-states led by Athens is commonly referred to as the Second Athenian League or Second Delian League. This league was established after the end of the Peloponnesian War as a counter to Spartan hegemony. Unlike the original Delian League, which was more imperialistic with Athens at its helm, the Second Athenian League was designed to be more of a mutual defense pact against Sparta and its allies. The league's primary goal was to ensure the autonomy of its member states and to prevent the re-establishment of a Spartan empire.
0: Well, that's good to note. So does Sparta recognize the focus that the Second Athenian League is placing on their navy following the Battle of Nemea?
1: Yes. Sparta was acutely aware of the renewed naval emphasis of the Second Athenian League. After the Battle of Nemea, it became clear to the Spartans that while they held dominance on land, the Athenians and their allies were striving to regain their supremacy at sea. The Athenian naval tradition, which had been a significant factor during the Peloponnesian War, was something the Spartans couldn't ignore. As a result, Sparta also sought to bolster its naval capabilities and secure allies with strong naval forces like the Persians to counter the growing Athenian maritime threat. This naval competition set the stage for several naval confrontations,
0: including the upcoming Battle of Canidas. So Sparta's reaching out to the Persians again, looking for support, and, and hopefully augmenting their navy? Exactly. After
1: recognizing the growing naval strength of the Second Athenian League, Sparta sought to counterbalance this by strengthening their ties with Persia. The Persians, with their vast resources and strategic interests in the Aegean, were a valuable ally for Sparta. The Persians had previously supported Sparta during the Peloponnesian War, especially in the later stages, providing them with funds to build a fleet that played a crucial role in Sparta's victory. Now, with the shifting dynamics of the Corinthian War and the Athenian focus on naval power, Sparta once again looked to Persia for support to maintain a competitive edge at sea. However, as mentioned earlier, the exact nature and timing of Persian involvement and their shifting allegiances during this period are complex and not always clearly documented.
0: Okay, I'm getting confused. You've now told me that Persia is backing both the Second Athenian League and the Spartans at this point.
1: I apologize for the confusion. Let me clarify. At the beginning of the Corinthian War, Persia was indeed backing Sparta. This support was a continuation of their alliance from the later stages of the Peloponnesian War. However, as the war progressed, Persia's interests shifted. They began to see the growing power of the Second Athenian League, especially its naval strength, as a potential counterbalance to Sparta's dominance. Around the time leading up to the Battle of Cnidus, Persia switched its support from Sparta to the Second Athenian League. This shift was significant, as it provided the Athenian-led coalition with resources and, more importantly, the backing of the Persian fleet under the command of the Persian satrap Pharnabazus and the Athenian admiral Conon. So, by the time of the Battle of Cnidus, Persia was firmly in support of the Second Athenian League and played a crucial role in the naval battle against Sparta.
0: Okay, this is getting exasperating. So, the Persians are not backing Sparta's navy. So, what is Sparta doing in response to the growing Athenian navy?
1: Sparta made efforts to bolster its own naval forces. They built more ships and sought to improve the training of their crews. Also, while they lost the support of Persia, Sparta looked to other potential allies to help counterbalance the Athenian naval threat. This included reaching out to various city-states and other entities that might have had concerns about Athenian expansion. Despite these efforts, Sparta faced significant challenges at sea, especially given the combined strength of the Athenian fleet and their Persian allies leading up to the Battle of Cnidus.
0: Okay, I can accept that. So who's leading the Spartan navy?
1: The Spartan navy at the time of the Battle of Cnidus was led by the Navarch, which is a naval commander, Pesander. Pysander was not as renowned as some of the other Spartan commanders like Lysander, but he was entrusted with the responsibility of leading the fleet during this crucial period. He played a significant role in the events leading up to and during the Battle of Canidas.
0: Okay, I think we've got the stage kind of set up here. How much time has elapsed between the Battle of Nemea and the Battle of Nidus?
1: The Battle of Nemea took place in 394 B.C., and the Battle of Cynidus occurred in 394 BC as well, later in the same year. So only a few months elapsed between the two battles. This short time frame underscores the intensity and rapid pace of military engagements during the Corinthian War.
0: Okay, yeah, that's not, not much time at all. So how does the Battle of Cynidus set up? How was that determined to be the location of, the, of this conflict?
1: Cynidus was located at the southwest tip of Asia Minor, near the entrance to the Aegean Sea. Controlling this point would give a naval power significant control over sea routes and access to the Aegean. With the backing of the Persian satrap Pharnabazus, the Athenian admiral Conan gathered a significant fleet at the nearby island of Samos. Their aim was to challenge and break the Spartan naval dominance in the region. Aware of the Athenian-Persian preparations, the Spartans, under the command of their navarch Paisander, moved to confront this threat. They anchored their fleet at Sanidus, intending to defend the strategic point and potentially engage the Athenian-Persian fleet.
0: Now, this is the farthest east that we've discussed so far on this podcast. It sounds like Sparta controls a lot of the Aegean, and Nidus is in a strategic location, so the Athenians decide to make a move on it. That's what you're saying, right?
1: Exactly. The Aegean Sea was a crucial region for both trade and military movements. By the time of the Battle of Cynidus, Sparta had established a dominant position in the Aegean, thanks to their naval victories and the support they initially received from Persia. This dominance allowed them to exert control over many of the islands and coastal cities in the region. The Athenians, recognizing the strategic importance of breaking this Spartan dominance, saw an opportunity in Cnidus, With the backing of the Persians, particularly the satrap Pharnabazus. They aimed to challenge the Spartans at this key location. The goal was not just to capture Sinaitis, but to send a clear message about the resurgence of Athenian naval power and to disrupt Spartan control in the Aegean. The move on Kinnitus was both a tactical decision and a strategic statement.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Um, Side note, you're getting a little bit long-winded. Can you please keep your answers short to two or three sentences, Max?
1: Understood. The Athenians targeted Tinnitus to challenge Spartan dominance in the Aegean and make a strategic statement about their naval resurgence.
0: Great. So the Spartans see the Athenians mounting an offensive and they respond by bringing reinforcements into the region, right? Exactly.
1: The Spartans, recognizing the Athenian threat, send their fleet under the command of Paysander to counter and defend the region around Tinnitus. How big are these fleets that we're talking about? The Athenian-led coalition fleet, commanded by Conan, consisted of about 80 to 90 triremes. On the other hand, the Spartan fleet under Paisander had approximately 85
0: triremes. The numbers were fairly evenly matched. So this isn't as large as some of the previous battles that we've discussed, where we've been talking about hundreds of triremes engaged in combat.
1: Exactly. While the numbers here are smaller compared to some of the massive naval engagements earlier in the Peloponnesian War, the strategic importance And the implications of the Battle of Cynidus were significant in the context of the Corinthian War.
0: With Sparta anchoring nearby, how was the Athenian fleet positioning themselves?
1: The Athenian fleet, under the command of Conon, positioned themselves to block the exit from the harbor at Cynidus, effectively trapping the Spartan fleet inside. This strategic positioning allowed the Athenians to control the engagement and put the Spartans on the defensive
0: from the outset. That seems like a solid plan. How do the opening maneuvers play out?
1: As the battle commenced, the Athenian fleet, bolstered by their Persian allies, advanced aggressively towards the trapped Spartan fleet in the harbor. The Spartans, realizing their disadvantageous position, attempted to break through the Athenian blockade to reach open water. However, the combined Athenian and Persian forces maintained a tight formation, pressing the attack and preventing the Spartans from executing their breakout maneuver. The initial phase of the battle was characterized by intense close-quarters combat between the triremes, with both sides trying to ram and disable their opponent's
0: ships. That's the common tactic and purpose of triremes, just bludgeoning other ships until they sink.
1: Exactly. Triremes were designed primarily for ramming. They had a bronze ram at the front, and the goal was to strike the enemy ships at vulnerable points, either to create a breach or to break oars, rendering the ship immobile. Once a ship was immobilized or damaged, it became an easy target for boarding or further ramming. The agility and speed of the Trireme were its main assets, allowing it to quickly maneuver into a favorable position for a ramming strike.
0: I would imagine that in such tight quarters of a harbor, this would be a pretty chaotic scene.
1: Absolutely. Naval battles in harbors or confined spaces were particularly chaotic. The limited maneuverability due to the tight space meant ships were at a higher risk of colliding with allies getting trapped, or being cornered by the enemy. The noise of crashing ships, shouting sailors, and the splintering of wood would have been deafening. Add to that the sight of sinking ships, men struggling in the water, and the constant threat of enemy boarding parties, and you have a scene of intense and frenzied combat.
0: And yeah, intense is a good way to describe it. I would not want to be mixed up in that. Are there any key turning points during the battle?
1: As the battle raged on, the combined fleet of Pharnabasus and Conon arrived, bolstering the Athenian side. Their timely arrival not only provided additional ships, but also a morale boost for the Athenians. The Spartans, realizing they were outnumbered and outmaneuvered, tried to retreat. However, the combined Athenian and Persian forces managed to isolate and corner a portion of the Spartan fleet, inflicting heavy damage.
0: If, if the initial setup was the Athenian fleet blocking the Spartan navy in a harbor... How are the Spartans trying to retreat? Like, where are they going?
1: The Spartans, realizing the unfavorable situation, would have tried to break through the Athenian blockade to reach open waters. Their aim would be to spread out, regroup, and possibly use open sea tactics to their advantage. However, with the Athenians' superior naval tactics and the timely arrival of reinforcements, the Spartans found it challenging to execute this maneuver effectively.
0: So, whether the Spartans are trying to break through the Athenian line offensively or trying to break through to retreat, the outcome is the same.
1: Yes. Whether the Spartans were attempting an offensive breakthrough or a retreat, the Athenians had positioned themselves advantageously. The superior Athenian naval tactics and the reinforcements they received made it extremely difficult for the Spartans to change the tide of the battle. The outcome was a decisive Athenian victory, with the Spartan fleet suffering significant losses.
0: Was there a final culmination or decisive event that ended the battle or just the eventual defeat of the Spartans?
1: The battle didn't have a single culminating event like a dramatic last stand. Instead, it was the cumulative effect of the Athenians' superior naval tactics, their reinforcements, and the constrained environment of the harbor that gradually wore down the Spartan fleet. The Spartans suffered significant losses, and their inability to break the Athenian blockade effectively sealed their defeat. The battle concluded with the eventual and overwhelming defeat of the Spartan fleet.
0: Wow. How long did the battle last?
1: The exact duration of the Battle of Scenitis is not specified in historical sources. However, naval battles in antiquity, especially those involving maneuvering and close combat between triremes, could last several hours. Given the strategic importance of this battle and the tactics described. It's likely that the Battle of Cnidus spanned a significant portion of a day, but we don't have a precise time frame.
0: I'm tracking with you. What does the aftermath of the battle look like?
1: The victory at Cnidus, combined with other successes, began to shift the balance of power back towards Athens and the Second Athenian League. The defeat marked the decline of Spartan naval hegemony and their ambitions in the eastern Aegean and Ionia. The battle, along with other events, paved the way for the eventual signing of the king's peace or Peace of Antalcidas, in 387 BC, which ended the Corinthian War and was brokered by the Persians. This peace treaty recognized the autonomy of Greek city-states but gave Persia control over the Greek cities of Asia Minor.
0: I have low confidence that you are pronouncing Peace of Antalcidas correctly, but uh, whatever, so I'm just going to go with the King's Peace. So let's talk about the Peace Treaty a little bit. Uh, The war was primarily between the Second Athenian League and the Spartans, with the Persians backing the Athenians. I'm pretty sure about that. Now, I'm not 100% confident. The way you describe the king's peace, it sounds more like it was about the Persians. Can you unpack that a little bit?
1: While the Corinthian War was primarily a Greek conflict, Persia played a significant role as a backer, especially for the Athenians. However, by the end of the war, Persia sought to assert its dominance and ensure stability in the region. Thus, they took on the role of mediator to end the conflict. The terms of the king's peace were heavily skewed in favor of Persia. The most significant stipulation was the recognition of Persian control over the Greek cities of Asia Minor. This was a major concession by the Greek states, essentially ceding territory to the Persians. The treaty also declared that all Greek city states, both in Europe and in Asia, should be autonomous. This was aimed at preventing any single Greek power like Athens or Sparta, from establishing dominance over the others. The treaty mandated an end to hostilities between the Greek city-states. This was beneficial for Persia as it ensured that the Greeks would be less likely to unite against them if the Therin were preoccupied with maintaining peace among themselves. The peace was to be enforced by the Persian king, Artaxerxes II. This gave Persia a legitimate reason to intervene in Greek affairs if the terms of the treaty were violated. In essence, The king's peace was a diplomatic masterstroke by Persia. While it did bring about the end of the Corinthian War and ensured peace among the Greek city-states, it also solidified Persian influence and control over key territories. The treaty is a testament to Persia's ability to leverage its power and influence Greek politics without direct military conquest.
0: It feels almost like the Athenians and the Spartans would rather live peaceably under Persian rule rather than continue fighting each other. Like, I know it's not actually Persian rule, but peace enforced by a third party seems to lend a significant amount of power to that third party.
1: You've hit on a crucial point, Brett. The prolonged conflict, starting from the Peloponnesian War and continuing through the Corinthian War, had exhausted the major Greek powers, both in terms of resources and morale. The constant warfare had taken a toll on their economies, populations, and political structures, In essence, the Greek city-states chose stability and autonomy under the watchful eye of Persia over continued internecine warfare. It's a testament to the pragmatism of the Greek leaders of the time, who prioritized the well-being of their citizens and the stability of their states over prolonged conflict and potential dominance by one Greek power over the others.
0: I can imagine that the desire of Persia to expand their influence and control may be tempted by the Greek city-states' agreement to follow their lead.
1: Absolutely, Brett. The Persian Empire, throughout its history, had always sought to expand its territories and influence. The Greek city-states, with their strategic locations, rich resources, and skilled populations, were attractive targets for the Persians. The Greco-Persian wars were a testament to this ambition. By brokering the king's peace, Persia achieved a significant diplomatic victory. Instead of direct conquest which had proven challenging in the past, they managed to exert influence over the Greek city-states through diplomacy. The peace treaty ensured that the Greek city-states would not unite against Persia, as they had during the Greco-Persian Wars. It also allowed Persia to maintain control over the Asia Minor cities, which were historically Greek. The agreement to follow the lead of the Persian king in resolving disputes further solidified Persia's role as a dominant regional power. While the city-states retained their autonomy, the overarching influence of Persia was undeniable. It's a classic example of how diplomacy and strategic agreements can achieve what direct military confrontations often cannot. The Persians effectively used the weariness and divisions among the Greek city-states to their advantage, ensuring a stable and favorable status quo in the region.
0: This whole time, I thought that the Corinthian War was about the Spartans and the Athenians, but it turns out that it's really the Persians behind the scenes that are pulling the strings that emerge victorious in the end.
1: Indeed, Brett. By the end of the war, with the king's peace in place, Persia emerged as the real winner. They managed to exert their influence over the Greek city-states without having to engage in prolonged direct warfare. The treaty ensured that the Greek city-states would remain divided and would not pose a united threat to Persian interests.
0: I gotcha, but like all peace, I'm sure it doesn't last. With the conclusion of the Corinthian War, what's our next topic for discussion?
1: Following the Corinthian War, the Greek world would see a brief period of relative calm under the king's peace. However, tensions would soon rise again, leading to one of the most significant and transformative conflicts in ancient history, the Peloponnesian War.
0: I'm going to interrupt you here. Didn't the Peloponnesian War occur before the Corinthian War, and haven't we already done four full episodes on it, Victor?
1: You're absolutely right, Brett. My apologies for the oversight. I misspoke. Thank you for catching that. After the Corinthian War, the next significant conflict that shaped the Greek world was the rise of Thebes and its challenge to Spartan dominance. So our next exploration would be the rise of Thebes, its challenges to traditional powers, and the eventual emergence of Macedonia as a dominant force in the Greek world. Again, my apologies for the confusion and thank you for pointing it out.
0: All right, we'll talk about Thebes next time. Sound good?
1: Absolutely, Brett. The Rise and Fall of Thebes is a fascinating chapter in Greek history, filled with heroic figures, pivotal battles, and political intrigue. I'm looking forward to diving into it with you in our next episode. Until then, take care and stay curious.
0: Thanks, Victor, and thanks to our listener for tuning in yet again.
1: You're welcome, Brett. And to all our listeners, thank you for joining us on this historical journey. Remember. History is not just about the past, but it's a guide to understanding the present and shaping the future. Stay curious, and we'll see you in the next episode. Safe travels through time.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Victor. Also, just for fun, uh, here is every time Victor tried to pronounce the word nidus in this episode.
1: Canidus. Canidus. C-enidus. Canidus. canitus, Canidus. 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 c Cnidus, 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 cnitus, cnidus, 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 tinnitus, cnidus, 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 cnidus.